welcome. You're listening to a sermon podcast from Oak Hills Church in Folsom, California. I like that we're here. I like that the sun is veiled by a thick layer of smoke, that it's supposed to be a thousand degrees. I like that we're here. And I like that you're tuning in online. It is good for us to gather. It is good for us to be together. It is good for us to keep our eyes on Jesus in the midst of these interesting days that we are in. So I appreciate you uh, being with us here today as we begin a brand new series. And this is a series from the book of Jonah. We're going to go all the way through the book of Jonah. And so to begin, we're going to start in chapter one. And if I could have you stand for our scripture reading. I do want to remind you that the app on your phone or whatever your device is has the, you can get to the scripture reading if you want to follow along. Obviously the lyrics to the songs are in there. There's some notes for today's message in there. So if you have your device, go to the OHC Folsom app and you can find all that there. Jonah chapter one, the word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai, go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it because its wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah ran away from the Lord and headed for Tarshish. He went down to Joppa where he found a ship bound for that port. After paying the fare, he went aboard and sailed for Tarshish to flee from from the Lord. Then the Lord sent a great wind on the sea and such a violent storm arose that the ship threatened to break up. All the sailors were afraid and each cried out to his own God and they threw the cargo into the sea to lighten the ship. But Jonah had gone below deck where he lay down and fell into a deep sleep. The captain went to him and said, how can you sleep? Get up and call on your God. Maybe he will take notice of us so that we will not perish. Then the sailors said to each other, come, let us cast lots to find out who is responsible for this calamity. They cast lots and the lot fell on Jonah. So they asked him, tell us who is responsible for making all this trouble for us. What kind of work do you do? Where do you come from? What is your country? From what people are you? He answered, I am a Hebrew, and I worship the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and dry land. This terrified them, and they asked, What have you done? They knew he was running away from the Lord because he had already told them so. The sea was getting rougher and rougher, so they asked him, What should we do to you to make the sea calm down for us? Pick me up and throw me into the sea, he replied, and it will become calm. I know that it is my fault that this great storm has come upon you. Instead, the men did their best to row back to land, but they could not, for the sea grew even wilder than before. Then they cried out to the Lord, Please, Lord, do not let us die for taking this man's life. Do not hold us accountable for killing an innocent man, for you, Lord, have done as you pleased. Then they took Jonah and threw him overboard, and the raging sea grew calm. At this, the men greatly feared the Lord, And they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows to him. Now the Lord provided a huge fish to swallow Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. I already mentioned this, but today we're beginning a new series. It'll take us through the month of September, covering a chapter a week in this Old Testament book of Jonah. I'm not very much into the titles of sermons or into the titles of sermon series. We obviously have a title each time we have one, but I'm not that much into it because it doesn't seem to me they really matter all that much. But I absolutely love 
the title of this particular series. I don't know if you caught it earlier, but here's the title. The Book of Jonah, The God Who Misbehaves. And I know it's difficult to stay focused if you're at home and online. I know it's hard to stay focused if you're sitting here in this parking lot. But there's something in this series I think many of us need. The God who misbehaves. The God who doesn't behave the way we think he should. The God who breaks the rules. The God who is unpredictable, unconventional. When we think we have him pegged and figured out, he makes a new move we weren't expecting. As the prophet Isaiah says, his thoughts are not our thoughts and his ways are not our ways. So travel with me down into this for just a second. Most of us, to some degree, project our opinions and perspectives and even our wounds onto God. So we create God in our image. Just let that land for a second. We create God in our image, and we each do this to some degree. Our understanding of him is often shaped more by what we need or want him to be than by who he actually is. This happens subtly. We gradually come to think that God's perspective on all sorts of real-life issues reflects our perspective on those real-life issues. We force a perspective and a narrative onto God and into the Bible that promotes our agenda and satisfies our needs and our wants. And again, we all do this. We understand God through the lenses of our own opinions and pains and politics and perspectives. God is for this and against this, just like we are for this and against this. And again, this is a subtle development. We hardly even know we are bullying God to be what we want him to be. We think we are following, but I wonder if often we are actually trying to lead him. And the longer we let ourselves stay in this paradigm, the longer we um, let ourselves do this kind of a thing, the less likely we are to ever pause and think about it because it just becomes normal. One of the reasons I think the Christian church is so thin and inconsequential and shallow is because we make God in our own image to promote our own agenda. So we read scripture with the meaning and the implications already determined, and we just climb our way to that meaning and interpretation before we even begin. Real simply, we control God. And in the process of trying to control God, we lose the vision of how deeply and how profoundly he wants to transform us. Well, the book of Jonah disrupts all these paradigms. It shatters our lenses through which we interpret God. It rips our agendas for God completely in half if we let it do so. And again, I really think we need this. I really think we need our God paradigms disrupted and our lenses shattered and our agendas shredded. We need a fresh take on who God is and what his magnificent story is really all about. We need a fresh take on how big God is. Not this big, not this big, but how big God is and how all-inclusive his good news is that it wants to leak 
and filter and run into every nook and cranny of our lives and relationships and stories. So my hope in this series is holy agitation. Hopefully, it's holy agitation. I hope to gently disrupt the ways we try to control God and disrupt the perspectives that sometimes we clutch so tightly and open up space for a fresh look at who he is and what following him is all about. So let's begin with a lesson from a prophet. Jonah was a prophet from God, sent by God, a prophet from God. He had God's words in his mouth. So, surely, we may think, he's got God and faith and life all sorted out and dialed in. Well, here's one lesson we learn from Jonah the prophet. Here it is. We never figure God out and dial him in completely because his thoughts are not our thoughts and his ways are not our ways. So humility always, teachability always, certainty rarely. Do you believe this? Do you believe this when believing it will challenge something you're absolutely convinced is right? The story of Jonah begins with God giving him an assignment. Here's the assignment. Go to the city of Nineveh and preach against it because its wickedness is trying my patience and I'm about to give them what they deserve. I'm sort of making it Mike's version. But I want to give them another chance. I want to save these Ninevites. So you go there and you preach to them. We'll see what happens. Now, it's hard to know when this book was written. It's hard to know whether it's a parable or this is a real event. The whole big fish swallowing Jonah gets people twisting and turning in all sorts of directions, but none of these things are actually central to the point of the story. Nineveh in its glory days was like New York City. Big bustling city, center of the world kind of place. Nineveh was, for a time, the center of the Assyrian Empire. So you had the Roman Empire. This is the Assyrian Empire. This is in the BC days, 700 in that mid-700s, late 700 BC, for about 150 years, the Assyrian Empire was in control of the world for about 150 years. Assyria is in uh, today what we would call Iraq in that area. And the Assyrians were world conquerors in their time. Again, reigned for about 150 years. Here's the real point. The Assyrian Empire was a brutal empire, violent, torturous empire showing no mercy to their enemies. And that's all packed into this story, and it's all packed into Jonah the prophet's perspective. For a time in the 700s, somewhere in that era, Assyria's oppressive shadow fell across the northern kingdom of Israel, also the southern, but we're focused here on the northern kingdom. And Nineveh, this big New York-like city, embodied the violence and the power of the Assyrians. So Jonah, the prophet of God, like most in Israel, hated the Ninevites. They were the godless other. They were the opponent he wanted to see destroyed. They were the them. So when God tells him to go to Nineveh to preach against it, it turned Jonah inside out. It shattered Jonah's view of who God was. I want to say that again. When he said, go to Nineveh and preach against it, 
It shattered Jonah's view of who God was. It shattered Jonah, the prophet's view of who God was. It broke the rules, the very rules Jonah thought God had established about what was to happen to those who turned away from God. See, Jonah's perspective on how God deals with the violent and the evil Ninevites needs a makeover because it is not aligned with God's heart. He is God's spokesman, his prophet, but he is in desperate need of transformation. And here's a lesson we learned from Jonah. And I'm going to just put this out there. It might uh, be something less than holy agitation, but we'll see what happens. Here's a lesson we learned from Jonah. Our view of God, our view of others, our opinions about this or that, our view of those with whom we disagree, our attitude toward our enemies, our understanding of the Bible's meaning, our opinion about social issue X, Y, or Z is not completely aligned with God's heart. It's not. You and I do not have God figured out and dialed in. Go with me on this. You're sitting on a park bench tomorrow at lunchtime enjoying your almond butter sandwich, carrot sticks and hummus, and a zero-calorie lemonade. When Jesus Christ shows up and he sits down next to you on the park bench, munching on a turkey sandwich made with unleavened wheat bread, and the two of you have a conversation, and he tells you who he is, and what he is like, and he tells you who God is, and what God is like, and he tells you what the good news is, and how it wants to change things in this world, and he tells you God's perspective on Donald J. Trump and Joe Biden, and he tells you God's perspective on abortion, and violence, and riots, and racism, and greed, and poverty, and Twitter, and Facebook, and Jesus sits with you all afternoon, and he brings you up to speed on who God is and on what he thinks about all of these things. Jesus offers his perspective to you on a myriad of subjects, and you lose complete track of time, and before you know it, it's 5 p.m., and right at 5 p.m., like Cinderella at midnight, Jesus vanishes. And then you stroll to your car and head home. And you're thinking as you're driving home, well, he's pretty much what I expected. And his views are pretty much what I thought they were going to be. And his views pretty much match mine. Hear this loud and clear. No chance. No chance. Your mind would be blown, your world would be spinning, your head would be unraveling, and your lenses would be shattered in pieces on the ground. Do you believe this? Do we follow God, or does God follow us? Let's talk about a deeper issue behind disobedience. Chapter 1 of Jonah says... Jonah didn't like the assignment God gave him, so he took off in the opposite direction, got on a boat, descended into the bowels of the boat, and took a nap. And from the beginning of this, 
right when he does this, one of the threads and themes we're going to see for the next, for this chapter and the next chapter is Jonah descending down. And sometimes a big point is made out of this. He goes away from God. He goes onto a boat. He goes down into the bowels of the boat. And eventually he goes down into the sea. And then he starts sinking further into the sea. And then he goes into the belly of this great fish. This downward trend when he disobeyed God. And so his disobedience is the subject of many sermons, as it should be. He runs away, and he shouldn't have run away. He should have obeyed. But if disobedience is reduced to things we should do and others we shouldn't do, we will keep on disobeying, and many of us have many examples of this. What happens is, if disobedience is just, we should do this, we shouldn't do that, God is demoted to a prison warden or to a school principal or to a police officer. Now, Jonah shouldn't have run away. But the more meaningful question is, why did Jonah run away? Why did he disobey? What did he not understand in this whole picture? Well, he tells us himself in chapter 4 of Jonah, because Jonah eventually, as you may know, he does eventually go to Nineveh, he does eventually preach against it, and the people eventually turn around and they repent and they submit to God, and God brings his goodness to the Ninevites instead of his punishment, and it's a good story with a good ending except for this guy Jonah, the prophet of God. Because in chapter 4, verse 1, here's what we read. But to Jonah, all this repentance and all this turning back to God seemed very wrong, and he became angry. He prayed, this is why I ran away the first time. I knew, he says to God, that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger, abounding in love, a God who relents from bringing calamity. And then he says, I'm better off dead. Just end my life now, God. This is the prophet of God, by the way. See, this phrase, to Jonah, all this seemed very wrong, and he became angry. What seemed very wrong? God's attitude toward his enemies. To Jonah, all this seemed very wrong, and he became very angry. That is like a theme of 2020. This kind of attitude is everywhere. Let me say this directly. Jonah is mad because God showed grace and compassion toward Jonah's enemies. We should just pause and sit here. So Jonah disobeyed God because he knew, or at least he thought he knew, God was gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in love. Jonah knew, or at least he thought he knew, that God was a God who wanted to save his enemies, not punish them. And here's the key. And Jonah didn't like this about God. He didn't want God to be this way toward vile enemies like the Ninevites. Jonah wanted God to be like Jonah and think like Jonah. Jonah wanted God to behave like Jonah. And we do exactly the same thing. But God misbehaves. God is gracious and compassionate. And here's the thing, his grace and compassion extended way beyond the limits of Jonah's grace and Jonah's compassion. 
and Jonah didn't like it, and he couldn't get his head around it, so he took off and disobeyed. So here's the thing. The issue behind Jonah's disobedience was a disagreement between God and Jonah over how one should respond to one's enemies. And something had to give. And God wasn't going to give. So Jonah took off in the opposite direction. See, when there is a disagreement between God and us over how to respond to our enemies or how to think of those who are different than we are, or when there is a disagreement between God and us over how we are to think of the Democrats or of the Republicans or of Donald J. Trump or of Joe Biden, disagreement between God and us over how we are to think about racism in our country or how we are to think of the them, here's what we do. We tend to bend God and bend the Bible so he and it aligns with our opinion, our view, our perspective, and that, my friends, is disobedience in his rawest form. That's our version of running away without thinking we've run away. We'll just bend God and bend the Bible so it fits with what we want and act like we're obeying when really what's going on is we're disobeying because we can't fathom and don't like the idea that God's perspective may be other than ours. Last thing, in light of all this, how about we invite Jesus to be our teacher where we have certainty? I want you to think about that. Invite Jesus to be your teacher in some area of life you are absolutely certain you are correct. Let me throw some ideas out. Politics, morality, money, relational conflict, the state of a marriage, racism, war, the Bible, guns, homosexuality, the stock market. And all I'm asking you to do, if you have certainty in any of those areas, what would it be like to invite Jesus to be your teacher in an area where you are certain already? If our perspective in those areas is actually aligned with Jesus' perspective, he'll confirm it. If it isn't, he'll change it, if he's permitted to. See, from the moment Jonah leaves town and boards the boat and sails away, God starts orchestrating his repentance and transformation and renewal. And when the book ends, I'm really thankful for this, Jonah has not yet learned the lesson or been transformed. Jonah the prophet. So I like that. That gives me hope. That gives me hope that this is process. That gives me hope that this is about trends, not destinations. Verse 4, God sent a great wind to churn up the sea and rock the boat. So now jo or God is after Jonah to orchestrate his transformation. Verse 15, the sailors toss Jonah overboard and what happens instantly, the sea calms down. Well, God's in all that because he's the Lord of the sea and he quiets the sea. In verse 17, Jonah is flailing in the water somehow and God saves him from drowning by providing a ginormous fish with an appetite for flesh. 
So Jonah is in the hand of God, even though he's running away because God wants to bring transformation. God is pursuing him to transform him. And this is the ongoing journey to us, for us. And to meet God in his ex and experience his transforming power, we have to sometimes go against the grain of our certainties and defaults. So one way to stay open and pliable to what the Spirit of God wants to transform in us, I want to say this again, is to invite Jesus to be our teacher where we have certainty. The things we are certain about are probably the things we are not open and pliable to reconsidering. So think about it. God is not really allowed into the areas of our lives where we are certain our perspective is right and something is wrong with that. So this is very counterintuitive. This is against the grain. Let me give you an example. I am certain God is loving. But here's the thing. My certainty can prevent me from experiencing the full implications of God's love. I'm certain the Bible teaches that God is loving. But here's the thing. My certainty about what the Bible teaches can prevent me from experiencing the full implications of God's love. See, my certainty makes me think I already get it. Put it differently. My certainty can be the very thing that keeps me from being open and pliable to a deeper and more transformative experience of God's love. And what might happen if I invited Jesus to be my teacher where I already have certainty, in this case regarding his love? Here's the answer. I might encounter the misbehaving God whose love stretches far beyond the limits of what I have experienced so far. This is not relativism. This is not minimizing truth. It's actually the only way I can conceive of us taking truth seriously. Because we're letting it have its way with us. We're recognizing we never get truth on a leash, snap the leash and say heal, and it just follows us wherever we go. There's more to it. We let the truth have its way with us again and again and again. Here's another example. Inviting Jesus to be our teacher when we read things in the Bible, we think we already know and understand. Or put this a little differently, we let the Bible ruin our neat categories and neat labels. Jesus, teach me this verse, what it means in my life and in my relationships. I'm open and I'm pliable and I'd like you to misbehave and break up my categories. We're surrendering to the truth of the scripture instead of trying to conquer the truth of the scripture. So our world is packed with tension and conflict and screaming and violent attitudes and a multitude of disguises. You know this as do I. So the verse we prayed over earlier, James 3:17. But the wisdom that comes from heaven is first of all pure, then peace-loving, considerate, submissive, full of mercy, think Ninevites, and good fruit, impartial and sincere, peacemakers who sow in peace, reap 
a harvest of righteousness. And what if we stood in the midst of the tension and the conflict and the screaming and the violent attitudes in a multitude of disguises with this single verse, James 3.17, and said, Jesus, be my teacher, that I might embody wisdom from heaven in ways I've never imagined. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for truth. Truth in story. Truth packed in the life of a person who's fleshing it out and living it out and seeking you and running into their own hurdles within. People like us, we don't have it all figured out. We don't have you figured out. And so we pray that you will continue to be our teacher, especially in those areas where we have certainty. For the glory of Christ and in his name we pray, amen.